0: of you that were here, we we started uh, a message that's the eighth in the series that I've been doing on the book of Nehemiah, Rebuilding Our Life is the title of the series, as we've been taking a look at the book of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem to protect the temple that had been built there, understanding that that's a picture of the temple being the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of the believer. And that God expects us to put walls of protection around our spiritual life. That it's not good enough for us to simply pray a prayer of receiving Christ and then leave our spiritual life unprotected, but that there are things that we must do and things that that we have to add to to that to protect that presence of the Lord within our life because we understand that we are constantly under attack trying to dry up the spiritual fervor within our life or trying to remove it altogether altogether. Last week, as we started into Chapter six, and we had such a great communion service that all I did was get to the introduction of the message and then kind of ended up going a different direction than what we had intended, so that the outline that is in your bulletin is the same outline because we never got to it last week. And we may not get through it today, but that's all right. Last week, we talked about finishing what you've started finishing what you've started. Briefly, we begin to discuss the fact that sometimes as you're on the journey, rather than finishing what you start, sometimes you experience failure, that failure isn't final, But just because you may have experienced things in your life that you did not finish or you had high hopes for, but you felt you let God down or you let people down, that doesn't mean that you are forever a failure in the eyes of God because He's a restoring God. He's a renewing God. He's a rejuvenating God. And because He comes with redemption, He can take you wherever you are and whatever you may be involved with or whatever you have done, and He rejuvenates you through His strength and sets you on a new path. And I'd like you to take a look, if you would, at at, at Nehemiah chapter 6, just so that we can get a little bit of the historical context of of what's taking place here. And I'm going to read it to you. And again, I will warn you, there's some names here that we no longer use today. And if I mess them up, just go with the flow. Nehemiah chapter 6. I'm going to read through this chapter and then into the first couple of verses of chapter 7. When the word of the Lord came to Sanballat, Tobiah Geshem the Arab, and the rest of the enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sandbalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to go down to you? Four times they sent me this same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. How many of you know evil is persistent? Then the fifth time, Ballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter which was written. It is reported among the nations and Geshem says it is true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making this up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day when I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Methetable, who was shut in at his home, he said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit sin by doing this and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet, Nodiah, and the rest of the prophets who've been trying to uh, intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid, and they lost their confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were, sent, were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under an oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Arah, and son of Jehonan who married the daughter of Meshullam, married to that guy. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and telling him what I said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Chapter 7. And after the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, and I put in charge of Jerusalem Hananiah, along with Hananiah, commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. As we have traveled through this, we recognize that the first three chapters of this indicated the call and the gathering of supplies. And chapter 3 talks about the rebuilding in one story. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 talk about the realities of what it was like and the difficulties of actually building the wall and rebuilding the wall, which very similarly relates to the things that we go through when we're trying to grow in the Lord. I'd like you to move to the first point with me today and that that is no one ever finishes without being tested. No one ever finishes without being tested. As you look through this Bible and for those of you who have been a part of this study from the beginning, you'll recognize that Nehemiah's work was tested at least 6 specific times. And I don't really feel that that has been added in by the Holy Spirit so that we would ignore it. I believe that it's something that we need to see because it's not there by accident. I find in the work of God in my own life and in the life of the church, and you likewise, those of you who have walked with God for any length of time can probably say amen to this, that there is a continual testing that happens as you walk with the Lord. Any of you ever experienced that? It never seems to end. And if you look back in the history of the book of Nehemiah, you'll discover that the first testing began to take place in chapter 2, verse 10. When Nehemiah was still back as the taste tester for the king, he was a slave, but he had a pretty good gig for being a slave. He had it better than most. When God began to speak to him to tell him about the condition of Jerusalem, and he began to pray about these things, and as he was just talking with people about what might be done, it tells us in chapter 2, verse 10, that Sambal and Tobiah had heard of it and they were much disturbed that somebody is coming to promote the welfare of the Israelites. All they did was hear a rumor that he might be coming and they instantly begin to attack things as it related to him. And if we can get picked off the road to spiritual accomplishment in our life at the very conception of what God wants to do, he doesn't have to battle you all the way if He can finish you before you start the race. Now we have examples of that throughout Scripture, but one in particular that I would like to call your attention to is if you would turn to the book of Numbers chapter 13. And we can look through the history of the children of Israel to see that this is not a tactic that Satan had not used before and it had been rather successful before. Many of you will recognize the story in Numbers chapter 13. I actually want to start with verse 1 of this. It says, The Lord said to Moses... There's this conversation taking place. God speaking directly to Moses. He said, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan. And I love this line. Which I am giving to the Israelites. I'm giving it to you. So the Lord basically says, I've got this present for you. It's like a hunt. You're going to have to go and take a peek at it. But I've got this gift I'm giving you. And then he begins to outline who all he wanted to go look at that. Moving now down into verse 26. After they've gone to explore this gift, this is what they said. Now they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And they reported to them and to the whole assembly. And they showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. And here is the fruit. And then in verse 28, depending on your version, it either says nevertheless or but. And everything after that word goes downhill. But, nevertheless, the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified. And they're very great. We even saw descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites live in Negev. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and all along the Jordan. So here we have this image where God has said, Listen, I am sending my people on a 39-day walk to a gift that I have given to you. And I want to send this group in and I want you to take a look and see just a little bit about what this gift is going to look like. And so they come back with this massive fruit and they instantly say, Everything looks just as He said it would. And then there was this but. Many, many times... God speaks promises to your life. He speaks to you things that He wants to accomplish in you, that if you will be a person that will walk by faith, He will reveal His promises to you. And some of you have been living with promises that you have felt that the Spirit has given to you for a long time, but you've been living on the but side of the promise or on the nevertheless side of the promise because you look at things through natural eyes and you begin to see there's no way that I will be able to accomplish this because of what I see with my natural eyes without ever understanding that that is one of the first attacks of the enemy, is if he can keep you from taking a step of faith, then he doesn't have to worry about you on the journey. Because he will have killed the vision at the very conception aspect. So you look at them and you say, where were they initially defeated? They were defeated in their minds by the report of ten spies who looked at the size of what they were going to have to face and were frightened off by it at the conception stage, and it ended up costing them 40 years because the enemy attacked at the conception stage. And I love this passage. that when they went to the land that you sent us to, God said, I want you to take a look at this. They seemed to sense, as you look at it, that they were more on a mission from Israel than they were on a mission from God. They looked more at it from the aspect of we've got to protect these people more than God is going to protect us. And by looking at this promise through the wrong eyes, they seem to come back with the idea that we have to protect you from God. Oh, that the enemy would not work on the minds of God's people that way. And they said it truly flows with milk and honey. In other words, what they're saying is everything God promised is true, but... We can't do it. Now we say things like that without a clear understanding that what we are trying to tell our God is you may have promised this and you may have believed that I can do these things with your help, but I just want you to know that I don't trust you and you're not big enough to help me fulfill the things that you call me to do, God. Despite God's faithful promise, the people who dwell in the land are too strong. Despite God's faithful promises, The cities are fortified and they're very large. Despite God's faithful promise, we saw the descendants of Anak, which was a tribe of very large men. Despite God's faithful promises, the Amalekites dwell, the Amorites dwell, the Canaanites dwell. All the land is taken up. There's no vacancies in the land there, God. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified. They're large. There's big people there. It's hard to imagine a report more unbelieving and unfaithful to God than this report. We recognize that everything you say is true, God, but have you looked at us lately? Because we're no match. Unfortunately, I believe that the church of Jesus Christ has fallen into this same thing. We live in a world where we hear about evil all the time, where we hear about the destruction of things taking place that erodes the values. But I believe that in the last days the Lord wants to begin to elevate His church back to understand that the giants of the land may be big, but our God is bigger. That we may be facing things that cause us to fear, but the Spirit of the Lord says to us, Fear not, for I am with you. And as the church begins to recognize that you cannot finish without a challenge, we begin to understand that the fears that we face and the unbelief that we face is as a result of the enemy knowing that if you walk in faith, he's in trouble. So he tries to defeat you at the very conception aspect of the work of God within your life. He does that to us today. In fact, some of you, Within our church, it seems like every week we have people that are coming and taking steps of faith to become believers in the Lord and are growing in their faith. I want you to know that when you start walking with the Lord, you are in dangerous territory. Because the enemy will begin to say things like this to you. You can't do it. You can't live it. You think you can change, but you and I really know that you can't. This is just another phase that you're going through. And He begins to whisper these things into your ear because He recognizes that once you begin to grab hold of the truth of the Word of God and begin to plant that within your life, that His grip on you begins to shatter. Because the Lord can do things in you and through you that will set you free and He knows that He will have lost you for eternity and that you will damage His kingdom. So He tries to attack you, the very inception aspect of your walk. When you begin to respond to God with your life, when you begin to respond to God's will, it's going to disturb the enemy. Sanballat and Tobiah typify how the enemy wakes up and gets disturbed when things start happening within your life. And let me remind you of this today. The enemy is bound. Jesus has bound him in the cross and at the resurrection and he can growl all he wants and he'll try to frighten you and he'll try to intimidate you but we realize that God has him on a chain and that we have been set free to walk in his power and in his strength and in his victory. So Nehemiah was tempted at the very beginning of the work but he went ahead anyway. Oh, that that would be our testimony. Yes, the enemy tried to stop me, but we went ahead in obedience anyway. And the next thing that the enemy tries to do with Nehemiah is after Nehemiah announces, now he's saying, it's no longer just an idea, we are going to do this. As he announces that the wall will be rebuilt. In chapter 2, verse 18, they haven't turned a shovel yet. They've just declared, this is where we're going. And as soon as they do that, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem heard about it. And then they begin to mock and ridicule. This is one of the strongest attacks on the enemy, is to get the people around you to make fun of you. It is the single reason, according to Barna's results, that Christians don't share their testimony. Single reason. Biggest one. Because I don't want people to make fun of me. So important is our self-esteem to us. So important is what people think about us. And the enemy knows this, that he knows that if he can ridicule you out of taking steps of faith, it's one of the easiest jobs he's got. We live in a world of ridiculers. We live in a world of people whose best gifts sometimes seem to be cutting people down. And in moments like that, honestly, the church needs to grow some thicker skin. We're living in a day and age where I sometimes wonder where political correctness is going to lead us as a church and what we're going to be able to say legally and not say. I can see days ahead where we may be required to turn in our notes before we preach. But I want you to know something. They can ridicule all they want. The unbelievers can ridicule. But the church needs to be the mouthpiece of the hope of glory to our world or they are lost without Jesus. There's no hope without Him. And sometimes we just need to hear what they say and let it roll off our back and stand up and say, I would rather when I stand before God having been obedient to Him than to have been knocked off track by a few words. Lord, help me understand what's at stake here. So they mocked and ridiculed in verse 19 saying, Why are you doing this? Are you rebelling against the king? And they begin to make up lies and things of that nature. And, and, And all he did was announce the work. Sometimes, when a burden becomes a vision and a vision becomes announced, the enemy will wake up and start to attack it because if he can attack it at the beginning again, he can remove it from actually taking place. Jesus speaks to us about the parable of the sower that when the seed is sown, Satan is there and he's ready to scoop that seed from the soil. In fact, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew thirteen, beginning with verse three. Scripture says, Then he told them, this was Jesus speaking. Told them many told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell among the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on the good soil where it produced a crop 160 and 30 times what was sown. He who has an ear, let him hear. Now, whenever the Spirit says, He that has an ear, let him hear, the Spirit is saying, Listen up, people! I want you to get the message of this parable I'm talking about here. What He's trying to tell you is that what's going to happen immediately following the service, as soon as you walk out those doors, Satan is going to be at work trying to take everything that you just heard as the seed of the Word, and he's going to try to eat it up before you can do anything with it. We understand that when we come into this place, we call it a sanctuary because there's a sense of protection here. We can let our guard down. We can be vulnerable with the Lord. We understand that when we go out on the world, we have to put on the full armor of God in order to be able to withstand the attacks of the enemy. But he wants you to know one of the attacks of the enemy is that everything that you hear on Sunday, the enemy wants to try to eat before you can put it into your life. And so what the Scripture is talking about is there is uh, there is a responsibility that lies on each of us that the moment we receive the seed of the Word, if we grab that seed and pull it down into our life and say, Lord, I don't want to just be a hearer, but I need that seed to become a part of me. I need you to create an environment within me that the seed that I've heard, as I grab it and I make it my own, becomes an environment where you can release the full potential of your Word within my life. The difficulty is that many people hear the Word and then debate with God as to how it responds within their life, and they'll go out and the enemy will instantly rob them of that seed. So part of the reason that we come here and we ask God to take the seed of His Word and grow it within us is so that we become responders to say, I'm taking that promise and I'm making it mine, and we reach up and we pull that seed down into the soil because once it's embedded in your life, the enemy can't get to it. He can only attack what you've done nothing with. And what still lies on the surface. And so when we internalize the Word, Satan can go and look for the seed, but he can't find it because it isn't laying on the surface. It's now embedded within your life and your spirit, and God can begin to grow it in that environment. It's a test that you'll find on the way to becoming a finisher of your strength and of your your walk with God. The next time that Nehemiah is tested is at the start of the work in chapter 4. In Nehemiah chapter 3, we simply have the straight account of the rebuilding of the wall. And then again, 4, 5, and 6 begin to talk about the realities of, of how difficult it was. And as you look at it this time, the next thing that the enemy says to him is, look at all the rubble around. You'll never be able to get that wall up because it's too much of a mess. Here again, the enemy comes to your life. Recognizing now that you have not only heard the Word, now you're beginning to walk in the truth. You've heard the people say that you're never going to get anything done. And the enemy begins to take a look at you and says, look at your life. Compare yourself to other people. You're a mess. I don't know if anybody's told you this, but you're a hopeless case. Everybody else can make it because they come from better families than you. Everybody else can make it because their marriages are better than you. God may be able to do things in other people because their kids are better than yours, but look at your life. You're a mess. Look at the rubble around. God wasn't talking to you because the amount of effort that it's going to take to rebuild your life, not even God can do. And when you take your eyes and begin to remove them from the focus of the Redeemer to what He must redeem, it can cause you to begin to walk in depression. And walk in discouragement. And some of you have been living in this pit of discouragement and depression because the enemy has locked you there by saying, look at the rubble of your life. There's no possible way that this job can get done. And we let that wander around in our spirit and in our mind and it attacks our heart and our soul and we begin to believe the word of the enemy more than we begin to believe the word of God. God has a vision for you and a vision for your life that is more beautiful and fulfilling and contented than anything you could ever create on your own. And the enemy will do nothing within his power, will stop at anything to keep you from it. Not only did the enemy try to stop them by having them look at the rubble, the enemy also, in chapter 4, verse 6, tested them midway through the rebuilding of the wall. He tested them with fear and disunity. Not only were there things to be afraid of on the outside by saying, if you do this, we're going to take you out. Fear of their lives. Now, we have not experienced that here, but I want you to know there are places this morning where churches are meeting where they are meeting in fear of their lives. We don't hear about it much on the news, but this perhaps is the greatest time of persecuting the church that's ever been in the history of Christianity. There are more people that are having to choose, will I live and die for Christ? or will I fall to the bait of Satan than ever before in history. In fact, the Bible tells us that in the last days of time not only will there be great revival, but there will be great falling away and that the love of many will wax cold. Which means that while God is pouring out His Spirit on people, there will be those who perhaps have walked with God for a long length of time, maybe even like like it was expressed in the exhortation of the Spirit today, that we will take our eyes off the goal and think that we've got it together and our love for God will begin to grow cold. We face those kinds of attacks in the middle of rebuilding our life spiritually. And we must understand that not only do the attacks come from the outside... There were a period of time where the attacks were coming from inside the wall where even the people of God were not treating each other well. And so Nehemiah had to stop and and address that and the people humbled themselves before God to make things right in the household of God. And those things happened. We must be aware of it, but they also, our enemies' attacks upon us is to bring disunity within his church. God also reminds us that when we are on the brink of success, that we cannot be careless. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, when you think that you are standing firm, in other words, let me rephrase this, when you think you got it all together, when you think your life is where you want it, when you think that you're a spiritual success, and you're beginning to feel a little proud about yourself. Look what I accomplished. See that? I'm not bragging God, well, yeah, a little bit. Be careful that you don't fall. It's often the case just when we feel like we've arrived, just when we feel that we've got it together, and that feeling we may suddenly become at ease in our spirit and set ourselves up for a fall because we did not continue to be vigilant with our life. I would like to show a couple of video clips this morning that give great illustration of what it's like I think you've got it together just a little too soon. Take my word for it. There's a moral to this story. Yeah, it looked like a coronation for Tonche Pepio. He's getting the crowd. He wants the crowd to cheer his performance. And at the end, he gets pipped. He gets pipped by Marin Simon of Washington. And you just can't do this kind of stuff, Lewis. You can. And you know, you see his face, and
1: you know, no one has to say anything. They don't have to explain it to him. He'll never make that mistake again. Celebration in one. I'll give you the rest of it after this play. Fourth down and six. And right. fumble Picked up by Leon Left Can he go all the way? It's a 60-yard run. He's being chased by D.B. Look out. Did he get across? No, they are not. That's going to be a touchback to Buffalo. There, there's no call yet, though. He has not marked touchdown. It was knocked out of his hands and went out of bounds in the end zone, which would give it to Buffalo at the 20. And look at left. If they call that a no touchdown, he's going to dig a hole and crawl out of this place from there. He's going to need a big hole. <laughs> they have not made the call yet. Was it knocked out of his hand before There's Leon. He celebrated too soon. No, that's just so. right, well, he's got to made the hit. Leon Rex still lying in the end zone. Now he's on his feet. And the call by him. The play has been ruled As a fumble in the field of play, the fumble went forward through the end zone and out of the end zone, creating a touchback. Buffalo's ball, first and ten. Leon Lett would have scored, but he slowed down to celebrate at the five-yard line, and when he did, Don Beebe, hustling, stripped it away. Beebe is the fastest Buffalo Bill. And this uh, has become a memorable Thanksgiving Day game. Will it go in the win column to Dallas or Miami? Stojanovic will decide it as he will try this field goal, which will be 40. Three seconds left on the clock. 92. Tolbert gets his hand up in the air and knocks the ball. No, it's not 92. It's 97. Jimmy Jones. Now, someone touches the football here. Watch what happens. It's Leon Lett! No! Oh, Lett, who is haunted by a Super Bowl misplay. And the ball goes into the end zone. They say it was
0: touched. Whoops. Leon Lett, Hall of Fame football player that will ever be known because he didn't finish well. That last, or the first one that we saw was just this week of an Oregon runner trying to get the crowd to celebrate with him at his great victory only to lose at the wire. There's some things that we can learn from that. Lord has told us that we need to keep our eyes on him. That there can never come a moment when we feel we've arrived. Because the enemy never stops pursuing. And the job description of the enemy is given in John 10, 10 when he says he's come to kill you, to steal from you, to destroy you. The Lord follows up and says, but I have come to you, my heaven. And not just life, not just survival, but life more abundantly. I want you to thrive. The series has been about rebuilding our spiritual protection so that when we worship in the temple inside the walls, that there's a thriving that goes on within our spirit There's a thriving that goes on within our ability to hear the promises of God and make them our own. There's a thriving that goes on within our testimony. There's a thriving that goes on within our homes. There's a thriving that goes on within our church because we've built protections around us that the enemy cannot reach our heart as he tries to attack us because God alone protects us and has put us on this path. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for a moment. Worship team, if you please come. We've, we've giggled at video clips. We've looked as we have seen the different things that the enemy tries to do and attack. We understand those because each of them can make application in our own lives of things that the enemy has been working on I understand also that the enemy is phenomenal at attacking your mind. Tries to tell you that you're not worth it. You're not worth His grace. You're not worth His love. There's too much work to be done. Perhaps some of you are here today and you have been struggling because you know, you know that God has given you promises. You've written them down in your Scripture. You've you know that they belong to you, but the enemy has been attacking so hard in your mind that he's trying to keep you from even taking the first step of faith towards seeing the fulfillment of those things. And Today, the Lord stands to declare everybody who finishes will have been tested. Testing is part of the, it's part of the journey. Because the more you're tested, the more you find the sufficiency of God. Things that have been tested becomes precious to us. And our relationship with God and our walk with God is intended to become the most precious thing that we have within our community.